Welcome to Mint, the corner of where crypto meets the creator economy. My name is Adam Levy, and every Tuesday and Thursday, I'll be showing you how the creators of today are building the communities of tomorrow by harnessing the power of Web3. Before we kick off this episode, I wanted to recognize one of the NFT sponsors that's helping make Mint a reality. They are CyberConnect, a decentralized social graph protocol allowing users to own and control their social connections while providing a universal data layer backed by powerful social features to empower developers. Already with 150,000 users and 3 million connections, CyberConnect is the largest decentralized social graph supporting Ethereum, Binance Smart Chain, Near, and Solana with more coming soon. To learn more, visit cyberconnect.me and start connecting with everyone in Web3. This episode welcomes Emma Jane McKinnon Lee, founder of Digital Lax, a Web3 fashion company, and the Copyright Cartel, a DAO dedicated towards pushing the Web3 Creative Commons license. In this episode, we deep dive into the CCO license, what it is, how it works, and the bull case for dedicating rights to the public domain. So without further ado, let's dive right in. Emma Jane, welcome to Mint. Thank you for being on. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for being on. It's been, what, a year and a half since the last time we did one of these? Last time you were on, I guess, uh, a panel or a, a segment that I was hosting was my last gig, Blockchain and Booze. What was it? I think about a year and a half ago, like I said. Fawocious was on, Jordan Lyle was on, and a couple other people were on. Um, and it's been a long time coming, okay? Long, long time coming. Last conversation we had was on fashion, okay? Fashion and NFTs in general. But this time, I want to really talk to you about CCO and this whole CCO summer craze that's kind of like going across crypto Twitter. And what better person to talk to than yourself with all the projects that you're involved with, okay? But before we dive right in, who are you? What does the world need to know about you? We can start right there and we can kind of move. Right. Um, so many things, but um, probably the most relevant to this podcast is I founded a Web3 fashion protocol and ecosystem back in 2020. That's called Dirtalex. Um, so we've been building that out for the past year and a half now. Um, I also have my own Web3 fashion label, F3 Manifesto, and I'm a big um, supporter, advocate, amplifier, user of um, CCO, public domain content, and particularly in the Web3 context. So I also started what's called CCO DAO, um, okay. which was more recent around December last year. Okay, CCO DAO. What is CCO DAO? How does that work? And how does that kind of tie into you getting started into crypto? Yeah, so um, CCO DAO, it stands for um, Copyright Cartel Zero DAO. So it's oh, kind of a play okay. on the Creative Commons um, <laughs> okay. zero words. But um, it's a DAO, it's, it's a community and um, kind of infrastructure builders where we're really dedicated to pioneering Web3 Creative Commons um, content, knowledge, usability um, within the space. Because like you said, um, moving into what we're calling like CCO summer after DeFi and NFT summer, um, it's becoming much more relevant to creators of understanding how do they keep advancing their self-sovereignty and what are the tools and mechanisms available to actually do that. And a lot of the, um, or really all of the copyright licensing that's out there today is incredibly restrictive. Um, it doesn't actually promote the free exchange of ideas, um, inventions, people being able to engage in free markets. 
Mm. And so um, Web3 and NFTs and the technology around this, and we'll go into more details of that, changes um, the whole model of um, how creators can actually deal with the ownership and use of their content. And so CCO DAO is all about pioneering that, and we do a ton of cool mm. projects and have a, a really um, awesome community around it as well. So that's like that's like sub niche, sub niche, sub niche culture. Um, and I'm curious more: how did you get your your foot in the door into Web three? Like, what did your journey into the space look like? Right. So um, I started quite some time ago. I first became really interested in Ethereum and Bitcoin, and um, just the crypto space in general around 2016, it was very much like me wow. on my computer, reading <laughs> forums, um, you know, joining kind of chat communities to understand more about it. And the really salient thing that stood out to me was all about self-sovereignty. Um, and really as an individual, what are my inherent rights? And um, how can I actually increase my self-determination? How can I just be able to walk down the street and know that I have optionality um, I'm not at the whims of someone else and mm. very much how society is set up today. I mean, literally what we've seen over the past, I think it's almost been two months now since Putin invaded Ukraine, um, that there is all of these choke points. And if you're not the person that is controlling that choke point, because maybe you're, you weren't born into it or your daddy's daddy's daddy didn't kill this person for land that's now led you to where you are now um, or kind of given you that, that seat. Um, you're ultimately at the whims of someone else. And a lot of us are in that situation where we're kind of living these borrowed lives and going back to it, just like with Putin um, invading Ukraine, one man and, you know, the horrendous tyrannical decisions that he's made, um, it's just causing absolute death and mass destruction for innocent civilians, um, you know, completely disgusting. But at the same time, it's like, what can, can people do in a sense? Um, it's all been just, yeah, collapsing because of, of the, the decisions of this one person. And so it's very much, even in what we call like Western culture and society, the same thing. It just seems sometimes more abstracted. Um, like I mentioned before, I like to call it like communism with margins. And what okay. I mean by that, it's like whenever you want to do something um, or get something done, get something passed, you have to go to some bureaucrat somewhere who is signing off for you or saying that they believe that this is good or bad um, and what the outcome should be for your life. And so that's really got what me interested into it. And from there, um, yeah, things kind of kept tumbling. And I went from more the finance side to then NFTs, looking at Web3 gaming and then into NFT uh, Web3 fashion. So Emma, I have a lot of people I've, I've interviewed over 200 people on, I guess, collectively over across different shows. And you're the first person that brought up that self-sovereign point of view, despite how big of a topic it is in crypto, one that I also somewhat align with, that that level of individuality, of self-sustainability, right? I really, I really align with that. But you're the first person that kind of like brings up this comment of, uh, I guess, marginal communism. I'm curious to learn more about like your upbringing. Like what, what type of environment, if you're open to sharing, like what type of environment did you grow up in? that has naturally led you down this path, you think? Yeah, um, good question. So um, in terms of like my childhood and that I'm, I'm from Australia okay. and um, the majority of it from like very young to around 10 or 11, um, I grew up in a really small beach town on the east coast of Australia um, okay. called Lennox Head. It's near Byron Bay, which to anyone listening, that's kind of more <laughs> Shout of out. A, right? <laughs> Exactly. Um, but that was really um, incredible childhood in terms of just 
never having to really go without. Um, and then when I was 11, I moved to Sydney, which is more of like the biggest city in Australia Shout out. compared to the US. But um, yeah, it, it's like got tall buildings and, and <laughs> highways. Um, so I moved there and from 12 till I'm 23 now, um, around wow. 21, I, there was a lot of kind of different things that I experienced um, from more of a personal family side. Uh, schooling side to also um, very much in kind of like the workplace. I mean, I never worked for, for anyone. I was always more on like a collaborative co-founder kind of levels. But um, all of these really salient situations where I realized that if you don't own yourself and every part um, about yourself, your most intimate tools, then ultimately you're always going to be at the whims of someone else. I mean, at the whims of someone else, they can do whatever they want. They can turn on the on and off switch, mess around with you um, in very varying degrees from, you know, extreme severeness to lighter. And um, you can't really do anything about it. It's very, very difficult. And so, um, yeah, it was really just kind of kept getting stronger a lot of those passes as I grew up and me coming to more of that conclusion of, well, you need to be able to um, have that full inherent right to, to self-determination. And um, now we have the technology to actually do that. So preparing for this interview, I read a little bit about your bio and did some research on you. And since you got started in 2016, surf, surfing the web for Bitcoin, Ethereum, I also understand that you had like a hedge fund kind of like background, right? Which, which is like weird to think of because off the surface, you come off so creative and you come off so like expressive. Uh, with the pink hair and the things that you're involved with. And I feel like it's like the antithesis of what a, a hedge fund job may look and feel like. Is that like, right. <laughs> am, am I so, onto something here? Or <laughs> So I would say a few things. So definitely okay. um, like traditional hedge fund jobs, like, yes, like boring corporate, you know, right. go and sit in a, a, a gray cubicle and, and right. stare at a screen for, for like, what, 16, 17 hours a day. Um, I was on the crypto side. So that's entirely different okay. in many ways because it's like Wild West. Um, and for me, as a creator, it's all about being able to just have full range or the full extent of um, across like every field. And I've, I've always loved that. And so finance, it can be incredibly creative, especially um, when you're in a community and you're, you're you know on the bleeding edge of technology and markets like in Web3, where... Um, the entire thing is not only dynamic, but, you know, like I've mentioned, you're actually building new rails and new financial economic rails for um, guaranteeing the self-sovereignty for every individual globally. And that is incredibly exciting. Um, so when I was at the hedge fund, it was definitely more rooted in the trading side. Um, I was mostly an options trader. Um, that's what I absolutely love. I, I cannot day trade. It's just entirely gambling. Like you have no idea what's going on. It's all no, noise, no signal. Um, but I was actually trained um, at the fund by Bruno Ixel, who's known as the London Whale. He was part of JP Morgan um, in their CIO office from 2002 to 2012 and hedged the entire bank's balance sheets during the global financial crisis. But um, he taught me what's called variant swaps, which is this more complex and advanced option strategy. And it's all about um, really setting up these mechanisms that when there are what's called these black swan events in the market, so um, you know one day everything can be great, next day you see everything's crashed or it's um, gone crazy up. It's really about like the difference in the delta itself, um, or that that asymmetry. 
and being able to um, create these trading strategies that actually capture that. And so it's very cool because it's completely different and left to field to pretty much how the entirety of Wall Street, um, American economy, American stock markets run, where it's all about really that more day trading approach. Sure. Um, but Black Swan and Variant Swaps is about well, going back to the fact that you actually know nothing and everything around you is dynamic um, and you cannot predict. So instead of trying to predict or um, guess about what's happening in the future, let's set up a mechanism that no matter what happens, you're going to be able to capture um, and profit off of the, the moves in the market. So that as well was like absolutely interesting. And there's so much that I learned during that time that I take um, into building DataLux, the Web3 fashion protocol that yeah. I founded and everything else. Talk to me about that. What are what were some of the biggest takeaways uh, that you kind of like took with you from? Was it an internship first of all? Or was it a full time job? How long How long was the gig? Right. Yeah. So um, completely full time. I was. Okay. I slept in the the office. Um, nice. I, yeah. Literally. Wow. I think for like three years now, I've slept. Wait, but like you're you're twenty three though. You're twenty three. How old were you when you were doing this? Um, I was twenty. Yeah. So it's like yeah. time out. How did you get an opportunity like that? How do you put yourself in a room of that, of that, like of that nature of that yeah. professionalism at such a young age? So um, I guess like a few th different things led me there. I was studying space engineering at the time and that's right. actually when I decided to drop out. Um, I wanted to go and pursue the fund like full-time dive into Web3 crypto. Cause I was like, this is entirely the future. Um, staying in, <laughs> A traditional educational school is not going to like get me anything. It's just going to get me a certificate on paper. That's it. So um, I dropped out and went into that full time. And it was pretty crazy. It was, yeah, like 19, 20, you know, hours a day to like two, three day vendors. Um, I slept on the floor of the office, um, you know, showered when I could. It was very hectic. Um, but I, I love that. And I've really extended that like in building to Telex. And I think that's for anyone that comes into crypto, they realize this space moves fast. And because there is such a, this like founding of financial incentive to it, in a sense, um, and the markets are very much more like raw to like the community. And, and when people are coming in, they're looking at floor prices or they're looking at, okay, how's the token actually trending? How's it doing? Um, yeah, things are a lot more hectic. And so I'm really happy and so grateful that I had that background because being a founder in this space, if you don't have at least some understanding of, you know, how mm -hmm. does the economical system work? Why is it set up the way it is? Um, you get kind of a lot of punches thrown at you. I mean, particularly yeah. on days like what we're experiencing now yeah. where everything's crashing down, it can be pretty scary if you, you don't know how to ground yourself. You know, I'm a, I'm a big believer. Um, I also did a, a bunch of internships throughout college. Um, I didn't study aerospace or anything of that nature, which congrats, like that's sick as hell. Like that's really, really cool. Um, but I'm a big believer that everything that you do kind of like in those early days, those first few gigs that you take uh, to yourself and, and you start like getting into the professional space really end up shaping the rest of your career as to the examples that you see, how people work, how things are done, processes, systems, um, uh, strategies, all these things. And I often look back to all these past experiences that kind of help me go throughout the day-to-day -day of being more independent, self-sovereign, doing the podcast and other things, right? I'm curious, now that you've kind of left the hedge fund world, which seemed incredibly intense, like incredibly time-consuming, um, and now you're more of in the creative world, doing fashion, doing CCO-related things, 
what were some of your biggest takeaways? Like, what were the biggest learning lessons? I guess either learning lessons, strategies, um, working for this guy who was like a beast on Wall Street that you kind of took with you into what you're doing now. Yeah, um, I would say one of the really big things is that um, often when we grow up, we're made to believe that things are just the way that they are. Mm. Um, but when you look into it more, it's really, there's a very like, kind of strong narrative to it. And um, if you follow how money is routed or how value flows, you can often kind of understand better why people are incentivized to do different things. And I think that was a really big part fun of it. I've always been incredibly curious and never just accepted things because other people said or because the system was set up the way it is. Um, but really being able to just go deeper into like economics and, um, you know, capitalism, communism, you name it. Um, yeah, just like understand how, why that's set up and why governments, politicians, um, you know, corporate giants, why they keep reinforcing things that are actually incredibly negative for um, the majority of the population and why things don't change. And that was really key to me. And it, that's also when I realized just how transcendent um, Web3 is and the technology that's being built, because for the first time, it's really about going incredibly upstream um, to economics, which a lot of stuff before it's been hijacked. When you think about Web2, um, that was completely hijacked by VCs, corporates, you name it. And that was really because although this amazing technology was being built and being advanced, um, it was detached in a way to um, incentives and how people were able to influence incentives that was still um, very much concentrated to the very few. And so Web3 is all about decentralizing the capital stack. It's about open access, permissionless, anyone now can build an economy from the ground up. You have the technological tools to do that. And that's super powerful because it means that you aren't reliant on governments. You aren't reliant on corporates and other centralized bodies where fundamentally their incentives are misaligned than yours. And um, if that's the case, then you can go out there and, and say, hey, I want to take on the world. Um, but a lot of your efforts will become altruistic, which is really sad. And that's what we see today with so many things, whether that's sustainability, whether that's, um, you know, human rights causes, so much of it really does become um, people walking down the street and it's a rally cry, but the impact is so little and things just continue on the way that they um, have and seem to have been for a very long time. Um, because if you can't change the way that money flows and who can create and destroy money um, or create and destroy value, trade value, then you're always going to be stuck within that, that same system. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious to kind of, to, to hear your perspective on, I guess, would you, would you go back to that period of working on wall street? Do you ever see yourself doing that again? Like, would you, would you spend time doing it again? Right. I, I feel like I, I still spend time doing it now in the sense okay. of when you're in web three and crypto and, and if you, you know, building a project, running a project, part of a project, whatever shape or form, um, that financial layer is um, incredibly salient and strong. It, it doesn't leave. And, and when you're building out a protocol, this is what's like the most coolest thing about it. And what I say to people, like when I meet people that are still in web two or they're building like a social media app, I'm kind of like, 
you know, explore more of the Web3 space because you're able to literally create an entire economy and civilization across every layer of the stack from uh, capital to culture to technology to governance. Um, it's amazing. And it's all about, you know, incentives, being able to actually construct systems mm -hmm. that um, incentivize people to engage within free markets, to build out different things, to collaborate within a network, um, but then also at the same time, continue to advance their own independence and self-sovereignty. And um, this is something even with building digital X, we have a number of different tokens in our ecosystem from ERC-20 tokens trading to um, NFTs and different varieties of NFTs as well that act as like keys and passes to unlock whether that's physical experiences, content, whatever. And um, that's a huge kind of extension from um, the more traditional financial system as it is now. So can we can we shift really quick talking about more of the 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 cartel that you formed the CCO DAO okay um right. can you walk me through like the genesis of creating that organization and more of the motivations as to what kind of like inspired its birth Yeah um so the inspiration itself it really came back to the same thing of self sovereignty self determination okay. and how do we keep advancing and extending this across um all layers and um, a huge part of that is content itself, which um, within, you know, more of Web2 and also very much society and how it's set up today. Um, we have a lot of licensing agreements, copyright, trademarks, you name it. Um, all of these restrictions that are placed on um, what creators can and can't do with the content that they make or other people make um, and how that can ultimately be used by others um, within the network or the market. And um, a lot of those, and, and really actually all in the majority of those copyright restrictions, they don't actually benefit the creators that have, um, you know, made the original or the derivative works or um, are going out there to seek some licensing for what they think will kind of create this protection over whatever they've created and then be able to give them some more financial reward within the future. And what we've seen um, you know, over many decades is actually this model, it's highly impractical um, and it doesn't work. It only benefits the very few and it only benefits those that already had the power in the first place. So massive corporations like Disney, Pixar, um, Apple, Airbnb, Facebook, whatever, any of these kind of big content production um, technological companies. So um, the copyright cartel zero CCO DAO this was really created for two core reasons. Um, one was to bring forth more infrastructure and also um, establish more of a community dedicated to advancing Web3 creative commons, so public domain, but particularly within um, the Web3 landscape and field. So how NFTs, um, DAO governance, how this all contributes to actually further advancing well-capitalized open source and public domain content. And then um, the second part of it was also really about bringing more of the knowledge out there to other creators so they can understand, okay, well, how is this relevant to me? And why is this actually giving me more rights than the traditional um, restrictive copyright system? Because there is this stigma um, that many creators have of, oh, if I give my work into the public domain, it means that I'm devaluing it or it must mean that I, I can't monetize off it, that now it's free. So um, that was started in December last year, and it's been a really exciting journey since then because um, 
more of the crypto community is understanding, wow, public domain and CCO is something that's super exciting and cool. And we're kind of like leading up into CCO summer. So what are some of the earliest examples of CCO licenses being applied to NFTs that come to mind? Right. So a really big um, and prominent one is definitely NounsDAO, which right. a lot of people have heard of. Um, that started around seven to eight months ago. And it's these daily auctions that um, are run on Ethereum, these little nouns, like pixelated characters, but um, everything is entirely public domain. And then um, also Dirtalex is another one of the um, kind of early examples. And that was even back in 2020. We started open yeah. sourcing um, 1155 material texture and, and print NFTs um, as like this open source fashion library. But the entire Dirtalex protocol now is completely CCO. And we did that um, around February. So what does it mean to actually, I guess, like open source textures and uh, digital fabrics and more of the fashion world online? What, what does that mean exactly? Right. So um, ultimately, it means that anyone can use that content material for anything they like without restriction. It means that there is really no policing um, on okay. what they can and can't do. They don't have to attribute. They can screenshot. They can download. They can remix. They can just take the thing and like literally remint it with the same name and put a price tag on it. Um, yeah, absolutely no restriction on the usage or um, derivations that come out of it. So nouns and digital acts are like examples in the NFT world. Um, what are some examples of CCO licensing being applied, I guess, in, in the physical world, for example, in the real, like the more, uh, I guess, present world? Mm. Um, some of the, the bigger examples is definitely like artworks. Like even okay. if you think about um, the Mona Lisa, like, famous prominent artworks these are all entirely in the public domain which means like any creator can use them and it's why you often see like fashion or posters mm. or whatever incorporating um you know significant artworks it, it's because actually yeah it's entirely free in a sense for them to be able to access and then not have restriction when they're using that um in other forms so there's that there's also scientific journals um a lot of those um have been put out into the public domain so they can be used in different ways um, but in many ways in Web2, CCO content is considered more rare and something that's more at like a altruistic or like government level. Okay. Um, it's not often that you see like an indie creator or a private organization that is saying, hey, we're going to actually just create all this stuff and put it out there. Um, which is interesting. And there's a few reasons why that we can go back to kind of like the foundations yeah. of why copyright started in the first place. Um, ultimately, the founding fathers, um, when they established like this, the copyright regime, it was only ever meant to be temporary. And it was really about having this understanding that ideas are always best um, propagated when there is this free exchange and there isn't restrictions put on where they can go and how they can be used. But at that time, really the economical infrastructure, um, it wasn't able to support and incentivize and it wasn't set up in a way where it could incentivize a broader range of creators with kind of just saying, hey, um, we want to promote innovation, invention within the economy, but we're not going to um, really give any structure around it. We're just going to say, hey, go out there and create, and then let's hope that it kind of propagates something. And so they put the copyright regime in place um, as this temporary um, 
incentive for creators to say that well, when you actually go and you put something out there, um, you can have some guarantees that it's not going to just be used in ways that will exploit you um, or will mean that all of your hard work potentially might go to zero if someone else just takes that and then um, claims it to be themselves. You can have kind of some more, um, yeah, like ledger within our system that you actually created at this time and that's going to be recognized. But um, unfortunately, that got completely hijacked by what is really the copyright cartel, which exists today amongst corporates, um, more like the political side of things, you name it, um, like Disney is a great example of this, where it's just used by these bigger behemoths and players to bully um, independent creators into actually giving up more of their rights and paying huge fees for um, mm. a certificate on paper where they really don't ever see anything back from that. And that's what's been amazing about Web3 and, and NFTs is that it entirely moves onto a new infrastructure and system where because you have this transparent on-chain record of um, what you created and when it's, it's time-stamped, right. you now don't need to have this like additional convoluted licensing. Instead, you can say, well, actually, um, anyone can use it. I'm not going to um, restrict the propagation of my content because it gains more value the more people can see it. But I'm going to actually um, define now the ownership specifically. And that's where you actually monetize on who can actually own what, detaching from how the content can be used. What's up, guys? Adam Levy here. Sorry for the quick pause, but I wanted to give some love to one of our NFT sponsors who's been helping make this season a reality. They go by Coinvise. And on Coinvise, you can create a personal or community-owned social token on Ethereum or Polygon. Coinvise also helps you create incentives through token rewards and bounties, NFT business models, and bot integrations for Discord. Discover more by visiting coinvise.co today. All right, back to the episode. So let's talk about value capture. So monetizing ownership. So when everything is public domain, free to use, free to license, free to duplicate, do whatever the hell you want with it. How does value get captured back to the original owner? What does that look like on chain? Yeah, really good question. Um, so I would say two points to that. I mean, ultimately today, um, it's really the same thing. I mean, everything can be so easily copied. Like you, the biggest right. meme in, in NFTs is like, right, click, save as. Right. And oh, I own it. But everyone in NFTs knows, well, hold on. Um, it doesn't really matter. Like I could go and screenshot literally a BAYC or a, a punk now. And I can put that on OpenSea. No one can stop me. Am I going to get bids on it? Maybe there might be people out there who don't like know how to ver like read the verified contract right. and so on and so forth. So they're going to be bidding. But ultimately, that NFT is really going to hold no value um, unless I do some like major public stunt around it that builds more of the narrative and story. And that's really what this comes down to is where does the actual value come from? Where does the money come from? Um, and it's not actually from just the content itself. It's really about the broader narrative that is built around that content. Um, even, you know, Beeple is a great example. A lot of people kind of scratched their heads and said, well, how did this, you know, random 3D artist, um, you know, get a, a bit of $69 million on like a JPEG? But now when you go back and you look more into Beeple's story, well, it, it wasn't random at all. For I think it was like over 13 years, he was putting out art every day into the public domain. Tally CCO is a great example, entirely mm -hmm. open source. Um, every day consistently for 13 years. And he built up this amazing narrative and story and also 
um, a community around him that supported him, that believed in what he was doing and could get behind that. And now when he was able to go out there and sell some of his work as an NFT, um, there was this new mechanism for him to be able to now capture all of that value, which wasn't possible before. And that's a really big part of it. It's using this new technology um, to say, well, we're actually going to separate the use or more the propagation of the content from the actual ownership of it and the status, the story and symbol around owning it. Yeah, I try to I try to think about how this can kind of come back to, let's say, like a podcast level. Like, how can this concept be applied to every creator from images? I get it. I get there's also I get there's also like Web2 libraries of royalty free music that you can use. Um, and apply and kind of like use to your own work, however the way, however you want. But I guess from my point of view, and I know we talked this offline, talked about this offline for a little bit, is how can this apply be applied? Excuse me to audio, for example, like podcasts. Like, should I just put my voice out there, for example, and allow anybody to kind of use it for whatever the hell they want? And what are the pros and cons of doing that? Right? Like, what are the pros and cons of nouns DAO, for example, giving full access? So I get the pros. Okay. But what, what's the downside to that? Right. Um, so I wouldn't really say that there is more of a downside. I just think it's more about recognizing that when you do do this, it's about changing your mindset from um, often how we're kind of total brought up within the current system of that policing. Oh, how do we lock stuff down? How do we make sure that someone doesn't say take, if you put your audio out there in public domain, they don't go and take that and then put it in some weird family guy voiceover yeah. or meme that then you might feel embarrassed by or you might not want to have associated with. Which um, I guess like in the big picture, like that's a, that's a net positive. Like it's getting more exposure. Right. It's getting more virality. But I guess then the question like to counter that is like, how can I capture that value back to myself? Like, okay, you might be scrolling on TikTok or Instagram and you hear a tidbit, right? And maybe Instagram or TikTok, they get that value. But me as a creator... I don't get that value, like that, exactly. that transfer of money. Maybe on a smart contract level, we can program addresses to basically be intertwined within every single, uh, I don't know, share, retweet, whatever that looks like in the future. But currently the way things stand today, I still don't capture that value. Like I know there's a lot of content on TikTok that gets transferred to Instagram and it's just repurposed audio. And when you click on the audio, there's like, there's no real way to kind of identify who it is, where it belonged to, but it went viral. You know, the person got the exposure. But the person never gets like the, the recognition for it, if that's what they're after, for example. Right. So I would say that today um, it's it's already live and it's very doable. And what I mean okay. by that is that um, this is really what NFTs and um, ERC20 tokens are built for. It's all about being able to actually capture that value. Because like you said, um, if something goes viral on TikTok, TikTok now and you are just putting out content there, how do you actually capture it? Well, it's almost impossible because what can people buy or purchase? Where can they put their money towards? I mean, you can't really on TikTok or Instagram. Mm -hmm. Okay, there's ads kind of, but as a creator or a consumer, yeah, it's, it's very convoluted. It's not actually like this kind of clear step-by-step -step of how do you actually get to like that source and then support yeah. the creator behind it. And so today, if as a, you know, a podcaster and running a podcast, well, if you had a series of NFT products out there and also a community token, well, immediately as your content is gaining virality or is being used in all of these different forms and mediums, that is able to be directly channeled back into um, the price that people are willing to pay to be part of your community, to um, purchase your NFTs, to gain access to the content 
um, you know, maybe exclusive drops, early access to different mm. podcasts or whatever. So it, it really is built in that way. You now have these very direct financial rails where if someone likes what you're doing, um, they can put their money where their mouth is in a sense and um, purchase that. And yeah. the great thing is it's not just this kind of, um, yeah, I guess, purchase where it's like, okay, they're just buying a product off the shelf and that's it. Now that it's it's an NFT, it's also this key that unlocks within the ecosystem that and community that you're building out. And, you know, like I mentioned, that could be something as cool as like being able to attend an IRL NYC rooftop party um, to then, you know, going on a, another adventure right. where maybe you could even um, contribute yeah. to like the story of the podcast or who's going to actually be on the show, like having governance rights within that, which is super exciting. Yeah. So this, this kind of reminds me um, back to conversation I had with David Greenstein, the founder, co-founder and CEO of Sound.xyz, the music NFT marketplace, where he basically, as he's, he onboarded, I guess, over a hundred artists so far to the platform, bringing over $2.6 million. And he's like, oftentimes what you see these artists doing with their NFTs is it unlocks secondary value. So what do I mean by that? There's a the primary value of the, of the NFT selling, the secondary value of being part of that list to purchase the NFT and then kind of like having these all these additional perks and rights that come with future drops. So for example, um, I think it was Pussy Riot who did a drop on Sound.xyz and then used the, the, those NFTs as a way to kind of whitelist people for another drop that she was doing separately from Sound.xyz. Um, and that brought in more value to the entire collection. So I get that. I get I get like the new Web3 like mental models of, of creating value, of bringing value, value back to collectors, adding utility, unlocking content, all these other things. I guess we're just still so early on to the process. Seven to eight months is the, is the I guess, the most found example of nouns, which is the most successful CCO project from, from my understanding to date. So we've yet to see how this kind of how this stuff kind of like unfolds uh, in the future. So what are what are some areas that you that you think people have yet to experiment with uh, using the CCO license? Um, look, I think every layer, I think, like you said, because it is early, um, really the big thing is just more creators submitting works into the public domain um, and for themselves seeing how um, that doesn't mean that that work is exploited in any way. In fact, it's granting them more rights and that they can still go out there and sell their NFTs um, for significant amounts of money. Um, just like now, you know, like you said, it's every day there's bids of like 80 ETH or whatever coming in, um, for these little pixelated characters when there there's, there's no licensing or copyright around them at all, which is pretty amazing. And what that shows is, is again, um, the value doesn't come from just the JPEG or a more unique JPEG, um, a more different JPEG, because that has no defensibility in itself. Um, that's, you know, really fighting for a lost cause because as a creator, if you're going in from that mindset of, well, how do I just create something more and more unique? Because that's only where the value comes from. Um, it means that as more creators come into the space, it just gets harder and harder to differentiate yourself because more people are going to be doing more unique things. And so instead, the way to look at it is really, how do I actually build up a really strong community around what I'm doing? And then how do I use these NFTs as keys, like you mentioned, this secondary value um, to unlock even greater things and um, build the strength of that, that economy? Because that's really where the defensibility um, comes for. But I, I'd say that uh, a big part that I'm excited for 
What we've definitely seen in kind of like the past three months within the NFT space particularly is this corporate consolidation. Um, it started appearing a little bit towards the end of last year, but it's definitely picked up where these bigger corporates, um, legacy fashion brands in particular from Nike, Adidas, um, you know, Louis Vuitton, you name it, they're coming in and they're dropping NFTs, um, taking large amounts of liquidity out of crypto and back into fiat, but really not caring so much about the community and, and, and doing these NFT drops is just kind of staying in that hype race of all oh, where, you know, building for the metaverse. So we're, we're experimenting in the NFTs and Web3 because that's the new thing now and that's the thing making headlines. And um, although, you know, when people say, is that good or bad? I have kind of two thoughts to that in one way is like great in terms of um, just amount of publicity and um, more eyes that it brings on different topics within NFTs. Like it definitely furthers more of the message to more people out there. But at the same time, um, these corporates and these groups are not incentivized the same way as like a retail or a independent builder or creator within Web3. Their priorities are entirely different and um, they don't align with decentralization. I mean, their, their model is so wrapped up within um, traditional liability that it can't become a flexible dynamic DAO. And so why CCO is kind of very important to that side, um, it is really a stopper against this corporate consolidation as well. And what I mean by that, it undercuts these corporates because their business model really relies on that traditional licensing system. Um, it relies on being able to punish creators that use their IP or their content without their permission. Um, it relies on them being able to, in terms of the supply chain, just reduce the cost of what it makes to create their, their items, um, increase slave labor to be able to do that, and then put higher margins when they sell their products to the market. That's how they gain more of their profit. So if you're, as a creator, able to um, reduce your supply chain costs to you know, even below zero by using public domain content, gaining access to free resources and materials out there to then use that to make um, a more unique work or another derivative, um, it really means that now you have the ability to actually go up against them um, and to undercut the prices that they're putting out there because um, ultimately what the prices you had to put out to actually make that product um, are becoming less and less through access to CCO. So that's something really exciting. So when, when someone wants to make something uh, CCO, quote unquote, how do they do that? Do they just put that in like the description? Okay, this is a CCO NFT, do whatever the hell you want with it. Is there some formal process to go through uh, to legally, I guess, make it public domain? What does that look like? Yeah, so the best way to do it, especially in the Web3 space, is just to post on Twitter. Um, okay. You don't even need to put it in description. Like some projects do, some don't. Uh, like even, for example, like with nouns, the actual noun description, I don't think has it. But when you go on the site, there's just like an FAQ section, FAQ section, sorry. And it says mm -hmm. like this project CCO, that's it. Um, so yeah, you don't need to. And that's the, the amazing thing about it is you don't need to go and pay a lawyer or pay some clerk to process a document um, you know, which it ends up costing hundreds of dollars. And that yeah. is something that a lot of creators, they don't just have right. to put out there. Um, you can just literally do a post on Twitter and say, hey, this this image is CCO. Do whatever you want with it. Got it. 
So what can we expect in the future from the cartel that you started, the copyright cartel? What, what, what's, copyright what's in cartel store? Zero. <laughs> yeah, yes, copyright cartel zero. What's in store? Right. So we actually forked, we do a lot of um, engineering deployments. We actually forked the nouns contracts and we have daily CCO auctions. So every day oh. um, a different creator puts up a um, CCO image, video, whatever, and that goes to auction, which has been really cool. Um, and the DAO bids on those items as well sometimes to really support the creators behind it. Um, but we're deploying soon a purely CCO NFT marketplace, which is really exciting. So it means that any time anyone mints on there, that content, um, it's understood that it's in the public domain. Um, but the CCO DAO is also collaborating with a number of other projects, particularly within the Dirtlex ecosystem. So a number of fashion brands. Um, and designers that we have within like the Global Designer Network DAO um, and bringing more of their fashion content to the public domain. Where the streetwear brand and like Web3 fashion label that I have, F3 Manifesto, that's all public domain and CCO. Um, so anything that's created out of that from like the physical fashion to modeling images to like digital blender files um, that all gets submitted as well into a repository for any creator to be able to use. So with digital acts, do you, I guess your bet is that there's more money to be made by making everything public domain than there is in trying to control it and spending lawyers and money on lawyers to try to fight and retain ownership and control and all that stuff, which if you think about it, that's what a lot of these big brands or all these big brands kind of like bet on. It's like the control, the ownership of their IP from Disney, you, you named a bunch so I guess your bet in your experiment here is that by making everything open source, there's more value to be captured. It's it's better for the ecosystem as a whole. Um, and of course, there's value to kind of be generated. And with that, it's opened a lot of doors for you as well, for new opportunities and whatnot, from what I understand. Right. So yeah, I would say there's two really cool things to that. Number okay. one um, is network effects. Mm -hmm. Network effects gain value um, the bigger they grow and the faster they can be accelerated. And when you try and lock things down, um, you disable the network effects. And Web3 is really built around that. Um, and so CCO public domain content, like that viral mimetic propagation, that un unstoppable propagation, um, it's completely enabling that. So that's a, a really amazing part of it. It's really in aligned with network effects. And the other part um, of, you know, like you said, okay, well, this bigger bet that definitely there's more money to be made within public domain than actually locking things down um, is, again, really understanding about how Web3 technology actually works. And like we've talked about with NFTs, um, ERC20 tokens, they work better and they gain more value the more people that can kind of create and form this narrative and story around what you're putting out there and what you're selling. And when you restrict how many people can view or use that, um, you reduce the value. Like a really good analogy is what use is a car that you can't drive. Um, and that's ultimately what we're talking about here. When you restrict or you lock something down, you're pretty much keeping that your car in the garage. You're saying, hey, it's got this amazing engine, but you can never drive that. And just going to let it sit in the garage. Mm. Um, and what I'm saying is actually, sure, the car has value when it's in the garage, but you know where it gains way more value when you can actually drive that across the country. Mm. I think that's like a, that's like a mic drop moment <laughs> right there. That's an epic analogy. Um, I don't know how to follow on from there, <laughs> to be honest. Well, that, 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 yeah. that, that makes a lot of sense. It honestly, it, everything just clicked for me right now. Like that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. And it makes me curious and want to experiment with what 
I guess, like mint NFTs may look and feel like uh, in the future. And this marketplace that you're putting together, there's value in curation, especially in Web3. And I think kind of like introducing a, a marketplace on that realm with that theme might actually end up doing really, really well. When, when do you kind of see that coming to fruition? Uh, about a week or so. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So is this going to be like highly curated drops like like they do in music NFTs? Or are these, is this going to be like an open marketplace? Anybody can come, publish, try to sell. What does that look like? Um, so it'll be different progressions to start with. It will really be within CCO DAO. Um, okay. But then, yeah, moving it out so that anyone can use it because that's a really big part. This is keeping it permissionless. Wow. Emma Jane, that's really cool. I, I'm watching you from afar. I'm, I'm rooting for you. Before I let you go and we wrap this up, where can we find you? Where can we learn more about what you're up to? Uh, give us give us the, the details. Sure. Uh, Twitter is the best one. So that's my username is Emma Jane 1313. Amazing. Emma Jane, thank you. I uh, hope to have you again soon. Thanks, Adam. Congratulations on making it this far into the episode. You are a champ. And because of that, I want to say thank you by giving you a free participation NFT. You can claim yours today by visiting adamlevy.io forward slash NFT. Follow the steps on your screen. You'll be good to go. Also, depending on which platform you're listening on, be sure to like, subscribe, comment, share, favorite, etc. It really helps grow the platform and our reach online. And last but not least, I want to give some love and recognize one of our NFT sponsors who's helping make this episode a reality. They are CyberConnect, a decentralized social graph protocol allowing users to own and control their social connections while providing a universal data layer backed by powerful social features to empower developers. Already with 150,000 users and 3 million connections, CyberConnect is the largest decentralized social graph supporting Ethereum, Binance Smart Chain, Nier, and Solana with more coming soon. To learn more, visit cyberconnect.me and start connecting with everyone in Web3.